you are loved. You are adopted. You will be glorified with Jesus. This is where we left off a few weeks ago with 1 John, and I want to begin there because it roots all in that. We start with what has been done to you, what is being done to you. You are loved. That's what's being done to you. Adopted forever, and you will be glorified. And then we get straight to the point, 1 John 3, I want you to see with me. So if you have your Bible, 1 John 3, looking at verse 11. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning. What is it? We should love one another. That's the message. That's the thesis of this section. We should love one another. Now, when he's talking about the beginning, you can go back to John 1. You can also think about what he's saying, but he's been making the argument from since you came to hear the message of Jesus, the good news of his life and death and resurrection, resurrection and current, uh, his ascension and current intercession at the right hand of the Father, you've heard that. You heard the gospel. Also, what came along with the good news of God's love for you in Christ came with the command to love one another. Why? Because infinitely loved children love others. That's what they do. We should love one another. I want to give you a description, not a definition, I guess, but a description of how love acts. Joel Beakey in his systematic theology says this, a description of how love acts. Christ-like, spirit-produced love is giving oneself to glorify God and do good to people graciously and righteously for the sake of friendship. That's how love acts. And, and as we'll get into it, you see it in 1 John 3, it is not mere mouthing words. You know this with your kids. You know this with people that have heard, I love you, I love you so much, but they feel like there's nothing behind that because actions over and patterns over years have denied the fact that they say these words and he's saying, no, no, it's both and this, this love serves. It acts. It gives of oneself to others. That's what love is. This is how we should love one another to give God glory in it, but then also to do good to people, to serve them, to help them, to bless them. But then John gives a negative example. Verse 12, he says, unlike Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother, and why did he murder him? Because his deeds, Cain, were evil, and his brothers, Abel, his were righteous. This is hate and murder not love. If you know John, you know John loves teaching with contrast, right? He's going to talk about light, so he's going to, of course, talk about darkness. And so he's going to talk about love, but he's also going to talk about what does it look like to not love? What, is, what does this look like? And it looks like Cain. That's not loving one another. Cain, his deeds were evil, and his deeds were disastrous. He says Cain was of the evil, and, and this just continues to press forward what John has been saying, that if you live like the devil, then you should question if you're of the devil or if you're of Christ. 
You, you shouldn't be comforted by, by God's word in First John. It says, like, I've got you, and you're being secure if this isn't matching up. If you live with hate and animosity and just a devoid lack of love for others, you have to question what's going on. You have to think about is the things that I purport, the things that I report, the things that I say, is this genuine? Is this true? Genesis 4 gives this account of Cain. And just to summarize it, we see that Cain is angry because his offering to the Lord wasn't accepted by the Lord, but Abel's was. And so he gets angry at the Lord for not accepting his his sacrifice, but accepting Abel's, and then that anger gets fueled by unbelief and jealousy, and so he plans the murder of his brother. This is not love. This is not brotherly love. Genesis 4, 6 says, the Lord said to Canaan, why are you furious? So this is after. This is before he's, he's murdered his brother. Why are you furious, Cain? Why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Sin is crouching at the door. And sin overtook Cain and led him and just mastered him to the point that he led his brother out into the field and murdered him. This side note is a very like stern warning that your sin is ready to pounce on you. We need to talk about the devil being a lying, prowling around, ready to devour. We also need to talk about sin in us that's crouching at the door, ready to pounce on us and master us. Its desire is to rule you, to dominate you. It wants to own you. It owned Cain. He was mastered by his sinful desire. Your sin is ready to pounce on you. So in regards to loving others, and this command to love one another, sin is crouching at your door, ready to pounce on you. What kind of sin? Gossip and jealousy and slander and unforgiveness. It's crouching at your door ready to pounce on you. Say, no, no, don't love that person. Be bitter and unforgive them. No, don't love that person and honor them behind their back. Slander them behind their back. Keep going in that prayer, that story about the other person, but then it turns into gossip. Yes, keep going that direction. John Owen responded to the reality of sin, crouching at the door by this. He said, declare this, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And with this context, the first John, what I'm getting at is fight the sin in you with God's love for you. Do you know what a loved child does with something that they're so tight on and won't let go of, but when they're loved and secure and they know that uh, their parents are for them, do you know what happens to their clenched fist over that item? It loosens. Your tight-fisted grip on sin loosens as you 
meditate, revel in, experience, and ask for the Father to pour out his affections for you. That love for you, where you are secure and ferociously loved, like you've always wanted to be loved, your, your tight fist open up. And that sin that you so demanded and loved and said, I have to have, and has been pouncing on you and attacking you and beating you down, you say, I can live without this. I can be done with this. This isn't the treasure I thought it was. This isn't giving me what I hoped it was. I can let go of this and fight the sin in you, push back the darkness in you with God's love for you. Now, in light of Cain murdering Abel, John takes this a different way, and he says, all right, if this, if this is real, this is what's happened, then what can we expect as followers of Jesus? And you're like, I don't know. I hope there's no canes in the room. That's like how I literally go. Like, that's what I'm thinking. But this is what he says. Verse 13, do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Do not be surprised. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. The world will hate you. I have two categories that I've put in front of you thus far. You are loved, you are adopted, you will be glorified, and the world will hate you. These are assertions, these are facts, this is your experience as a Christian, because it's the experience of every Christian. The world will hate you. And again, when John is speaking about the world, he's not talking about the uh, entire population of the planet at this point in time. He's talking about the world system in rebellion against God. The demonic-driven cultural values or as Paul will talk about, this idolatrous age. That's why he's talking about the world. And John is just repeating to us, to his disciples, what he has heard from his master. Jesus said this in John 15, to John and the others. If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. <laughs> Do you see the cascade uh, of love and hate in our Trinitarian relationship with God. What I mean is this. The Father so loves the Son, so then the Son pours out his love, overflows with love, and that love comes to us. But just like that overflows, the hate that the world has for Jesus so overflows for Jesus that they hate us as well because you're united to Jesus, because you're tied to Jesus, because you're bound to Jesus. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I've chosen you out of it, the world hates you. And John just gently and matter-of-factly states, don't be surprised. You shouldn't be caught off guard. Don't be surprised that the world hates you. But... If you can track with me, he also adds another thing that you shouldn't be surprised by. And it's in verse 14. It's this. 
don't be surprised if you as a Christian love your brothers and sisters. You know why? Because love for your brothers and sisters is evidence of your eternal life. That's what he's saying. That because you are united to Jesus and because he's given you new life, given you a new heart, at the root of you is different. And you are rooted in the gospel. So the fruit of that relationship is you love your brothers and sisters. So don't be surprised if you love your brothers and sisters because you've been loved and been given a heart now that loves. But another warning. If you don't love, you remain in death. If you cannot observe and discern genuine affections for God and for his people, you should wrestle with, do I know Jesus or am I pretending to be a Christian? Is this genuine? Or is this something that I've so learned and learned all the mannerisms and the artifacts of this Christian culture that I can regurgitate to everyone and I can even deceive myself that I'm in this, but I, when it comes down to it, don't love my brothers and sisters. I'm cold towards them. I don't have affection for them. It's easy for me to write them off, to dismiss them. He says, there's no, if there's no love from you, then there's no life in you. So this should be, like I've said, assuring to those that have the, the love for the brothers and sisters as evidence of their life, where you've been kind of wrestling with your assurance of your salvation, you're wrestling with, do I really know and follow Jesus? And that is just good balm to your anxious, sweating heart. But others of us need to be provoked, to be confronted with. You may say you are in life. You may say you have life, but you actually may remain in death. This is another test to help those that need help and assurance, but also to provoke, to awaken us to the lostness of our lostness. The reality of where our soul is actually at, the condition of our soul before the Lord. You may say you know Jesus, but if you don't love your brothers and sisters, then Jesus' life is not in you. And you're like, man, John's going hard in the paint today, right? He doubles down. He doubles down and reiterates Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. He states, if you hate your brother or sister, you are a murderer. And murder and eternal life don't mix, don't mingle, don't go together. If hate is a regular fruit in your life, you should ask the Lord to expose what's at the root, what's actually going on in your heart, to ask the Lord to beg him. Like if you're self-deceived here, you need to ask the Lord and beg him to reveal your heart, expose your heart, and reveal what you truly need. Some of you should feel comforted, comforted by the evidence of love in your life. Others of you should be concerned. 
about the state of your soul. Are you who you say you are? Or are you pretending to be a Christian? Now go back with me to the thesis. The thesis is this. We should love one another. So you unpack that a little bit. But that's the thesis. That's the big idea. But now he's going to root it in the gospel. And so if you remember a few weeks ago, I, I got into the indicatives and the imperatives. The indicatives are what is true. And the imperatives of what you are told to, they are commands. And so the command started. The thesis is a command, right? We should love one another. That's the imperative. But he's going to root this in the, the truth, the indicative that, verse 16, this is how we have come to know love. Jesus laid down his life for us. You are loved. And how do you know you're loved? How, you, how have you experienced and been, been transformed by love? Jesus died in your place for your sins. That's how you know you are loved. You experience his love. You can't say, I'm unaware of it. You can't say, I, I don't know, uh, what, what does this look like? How should I live this? Yeah, you've probably had many people fail you in discipling you and training you in how to love and modeling for you. But you can't say, I have never seen this. I don't know what this is like this. I don't know how to define it or describe it because you've experienced it from the Father himself. You're loved. You're loved because Jesus gave his life for you. That's how much he loved you. Willingly died in our place for our hatred. <laughs> Which perfectly lines up with that thought from, from uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Like darkness is going to out, push out darkness, but love, love is going to, and that's what Jesus has done. Love has covered your hate. Love of Jesus for you has covered your arrogance. He died for that, for all our sin and idolatry. The beloved son of the father loved you by giving his life for yours. So if you're, you're not a Christian, if that's what God is revealing to you now, that you're not a Christian, then you don't need some tips to deal with your anger. You need the God of love to overwhelm your hatred and anger, to forgive you of it, and to turn you into a person who is no longer defined by anger and hatred, but by love because he loves you. And I know this is like unbelievable. It's incredulous. It's hard to believe that it's this simple and glorious at the same time because most of us have been let down and failed by the people that we're supposed to love, protect, and care for us throughout our lives. So we can't fathom that the God-man would love us in such this way. And so I know it's hard to like swallow down because you can't maybe fathom this kind of love, but John and the rest of the Bible tells us this is how much you're loved. He laid down his life for you. This is what you need. 
You need someone not to give you tips to be a little better angry person. You need Jesus to love you and to love, to overwhelm your heart with his grace and affection for you and to be made new. That's what we need. And so if you've been self-deceived, then thank God that the Spirit is working in you to show you that. And then you can throw yourself down humbly at the feet of Jesus for mercy and grace because that's who he is. And then Christian, you know love. You felt the Father's love for you. You've been caught up in the Trinitarian fellowship of love. Love is the definitive mark of your past, present, and future. There's not a moment in your life where Jesus' love wasn't beating for you. And even that deepest pit where you cursed his name, where you crossed lines that you thought you would never cross, when you feel broken because of how much your sin has wrecked you and your soul and your relationships and, and what you have done, in that very moment, Jesus' heart was enlarged for you. That's how he loves you. There's not a moment where his heart wasn't beating for you. J.I. Packer, he writes this. Where I ask to focus the New Testament message in three words, my proposal would be adoption through propitiation. That we have been adopted into the Father's family because the penalty for all of our gross sin and hatred and animosity was poured out on the Son so that we could be pulled into the family of God. And he says, I do not expect ever to meet a richer or more pregnant summary of the gospel than that. And then he annies up one more. In the New Testament, grace means God's love and action toward people who merited the opposite of love. Grace means God moving heaven and earth to save sinners who cannot lift a finger to save themselves. Grace means God sending his only son to the cross to descend in hell so that we guilty ones might be reconciled to God and received into heaven. Christian, you know love because you are loved. You are adopted and you will be glorified. And so he roots this thesis. We should love one another in the gospel that he laid down, Jesus laid down his life for us, and then he just impacts a few implications of the gospel. Verse 16 again. What's the first implication? We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. I'll keep going. 17, if anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer need but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. So first implication, we lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. God is 
love. We must love our brothers and sisters. The Father affectionately treasure you, and the Son sacrificially loves you in real action. He laid down his life for you. So then, that's what, that's what John is arguing for. That's what he's pushing us toward. This is what it looks like to receive love, is then to be compelled to go outwards and lay down our lives for others like Jesus has done for us. Sacrifice our time. Sacrifice our convenience. Die to some preferences. Die to our sinful desires and demands. Pour out our lives for others. This is what he's saying. This is the most thrilling and exhausting adventure you can live in this life to day in and day out breathe in the love of God for you in Christ, stand on that, feel that, and then walk out and say all day, I'm going to pour out my life for others. By the end of the day, I feel like I'm gonna be drained and that's cool because that's what today was for. Today was for me to empty myself of all the affection and encouragement and blessing that the Lord has graced me with that morning so that I can love you and you and you and you and you. That's my day. You know what tomorrow's going to look like? The same thing because I'm going to lay down my life for others as Christ laid down his life for us. Number two, second implication we don't close our hearts. We don't close our hearts to our brothers and sisters in need. We give generously. We give sacrificially to our brothers and sisters. He said, if anyone has the world's goods, that's the material possessions, the things that, the resources, and sees a fellow believer in need, but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? So, if Nick needed $10 and Colin saw that he needed $10 and Colin said, well, what a terrible example. Should have prepped for that one beforehand. But I know how much Nick needs $10 right now. And so Colin sees it and doesn't give him $10. And you're like, yeah, that's what John is saying. No, John is saying something deeper than that. John is saying not only did Colin not give Nick the $10 that he needed for whatever that crisis was in that moment, he shut off the hose of affections in his heart for Nick. That's what he did. He turned cold and numb towards Nick. He didn't give money because he's turned compassion off for Nick. That's what's happened. He said, no, no, no. We lay our lives down for one another. We should love one another. To love one another means Christ-like sacrificing yourself for others. So that when you scan and meet the needs of your brothers and sisters in your life, you don't touch the hose. or you turn it up, that's your two options. You don't close it off. 
You don't go cold towards your brother and sister. Familial love requires practical action to help those in need. This is more than mere words. That's why I said, not in word or speech, not just, hey, I can tell you I love you. I can say, hey, we're really about this. I can end all our meetings, you know, our conversations uh, like we do now where we're like, hey, let's have lunch, but that, what we really mean is bye. You know what I mean? Like, oh, hey, let's do lunch one sometime. It's like, I really mean bye. I don't ever really want to have lunch with you, but that's how I want to end the conversation. No, no, let's actually love and move towards people and engage them and lay down our lives for them. Practical action. Action. The king will say on judgment day, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Love and action. Now, I had to think about this, and I was thinking just in the interpersonal dynamics of a family this size and, and how we operate, and I was thinking, why? What, why would we turn off the hose of compassion for our brothers and sisters? Why would we see a need? Why would we see something and essentially just like the, the priest in the Good Samaritan story, just walk on the other side of the road and keep trucking on. Why? And I was thinking, when he's talking about the world's goods, and he, he, he talks about the, the world and other places, and then he talks about the, the co-worker who has left because like the, the lights of the city just attracted to the world. And I was thinking, the world's goods, if they've hijacked your heart, if you're more attached to stuff than a brother and sister, then you will be tight-fisted on your stuff uh, and, and not give to other people. You're, you're more connected to, attached to, in love with, desiring of your stuff, and it rules you and owns your heart, so the idea of serving another person, giving something of yours to them, is like, no, this is mine. I'm going to hold on to it. I earned this. I did the hard labor to get this. This is mine. Or maybe... We could turn off the water hose of compassion for other, others because maybe we're tired of helping. <laughs> we're tired of helping others. We're tired of how long it's taken with this particular person. We're tired how immature they are. We're tired of how long it's taken them to get to the point that we are, but they're actually still not there, so we're still waiting for them to catch up. So while the other one is ruled by goods and possessions and money, the other is ruled by self-righteousness. I'm going to turn this off because I'm done with this person. They, they're not keeping up. I'm tired of having to endure and bear with them. Praise God that Jesus doesn't treat us that way. Jesus did not get tired of helping us. And Jesus was, his heart was not hijacked by the love of the world so that he turned off compassion towards us. Jesus actually laid aside his glory in heaven and humbled himself to live as a creature 
because he saw you were in need and his heart flooded with compassion for you. Matthew says it this way, when Jesus saw the crowds, Jesus felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. Did you see that second phrase? He felt compassion for them. Thank God Jesus didn't treat us the way that we treat others so often. That he loved, that he was moved by compassion. And when he saw us in our need, it's like the, the, <laughs> the faucet broke and just love flooded on us. This is what he saw in our need. This is what he's done to us in our need. And this is what it looks like to follow him. To humbly admit that I need Jesus and I need others, which means I also know that you need Jesus and you need others. So as much self-protective or introverted or trying to stay away from it, I can keep coming at you because you can say you don't need other people, but I know you need others. And I'm going to keep loving you. I'm going to keep coming after you. You need like one of the primary ways, let me back off that a bit. One of the ways that you experience the Father's love for you is through his children to you. Which that means you can be the part, the person that, that gets to in a very tangible, practical need level, bring God's love to them in their life. To show them that they would pray, that they would feel the Father's affections for, you, for them, and then you would show up and help them in their need. You know how they're going to interpret that, and you know why they're going to interpret it, because that's true. That means God has sent them so that you would answer their prayers. That they would sense God's love for them through your practical, sacrificial love. I uh, showed a song to my wife recently, and I played this song because I grew up in my teenage years uh, just listening to hip-hop, and I still... Uh, would listen to hip-hop, and I showed her this song, and I never heard it before because it was, it was out of those years when I was listening to it. And, and, uh, and I, I know a lot of braggadocious, arrogant hip-hop. Like, I vibed in that culture. I picked it up very arrogant uh, as a teenager and a 20-year-old and a 30-year-old. And I uh, showed her, though, and I showed her the lyrics, and the lyrics were like the most braggadocious thing I could ever hear. I was like, how is this real? How, do, how did everyone sign off on this? And it's, it's a song by Drake called All Me, and it's saying, I did this all by myself. All me. I came up all me. I got this all me. And I was like, bro, you ain't had no parents. No one else helped you. No one mentored you. No one helps you currently. There's no one in your life that like 
contribute a little bit? There's no one that encouraged him? Like, lie, lie, lie. But then I was like, but that's us. So often we're like, no, I, I will just contain myself. It'll be me and Jesus. It's like, no, the world of this adventurous, thrilling, exhausting life with Jesus and his people is that we pour out our life for others daily in love because he laid down his life for us. That's what it looks like. Which means the third invocation, we love in action and in truth. Love is giving oneself to do good to people. Love shows kindness. I mean, there are endless possibilities in your life to love in action, to do good to others. But I'll just give you a few. What does it look like in action? It means we give generously food and water and medicine and money. We pray for others. We give our time and labor to help them. We clean their homes. We listen to them and hear their stories of suffering. How do you love? You endure and gently engage with your children. How can you love? You engage and help your spouse through their problems and their sin and their suffering. I could go into all these little lists of what love actually looks like in the sacrificial level, but I want to paint this bigger picture that love is an orientation of our whole life to live for the good of others. It's, you can turn this into a checkbox mentality, but God is not asking you for three actions of love a day. He's asking and commanding for your whole orientation of your life to be radically centered around the God of love and then your whole life given to the service and sacrificial love of others. That's what he's calling you to. We are not lords to be served. We're loved children who are to love. That's who we are. living for others in daily sacrifice. I just say this to, to people I talk to sometimes, and they're wrestling with like friendships or making friends, and I, I encourage them in a few ways. But one thing in regards to this I say is, if you want to be a friend, if you want to make friends, then be a friend, and be a friend by loving that person and serving them in their needs. I mean, you can wait for the perfect person to have a perfect schedule lined up with your schedule so you can go to coffee with them and have a 45-minute conversation, or you can move towards them and love whenever you can at any moment and love them and serve them. This sacrificial life. Love serves. And this is, this is not relegated to 1 John. This is throughout the whole New Testament. God has stated it many ways. You know when, when uh, Jesus said, verily, verily, and you're like, ooh, he said it twice, perk up, that's true. Uh, more than verily, verily, he commands this love of one another many times and in many ways. To love others all birth out of his ferocious, ongoing, never ceasing, never fading love for us. And so I want to berate your mind and heart with God speaking to you and just telling you again and again the same thing in a different way. Are you on board? Okay. John 13. I give you 
a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you're also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. John 15, Jesus again. This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. John 15 again. This is what I command you. Yes, this is five verses later than what he just said. This is what I command you. Love one another. Paul in Romans 12. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Take the lead in honoring one another. Deeply. Romans 13. Do not owe anyone anything. Like, okay. I've heard Dave Ramsey quote that once or twice. With nothing else, just that one phrase. Uh, Joking. But keep going. Except to love one another. Not in a condescending, guilting, shaming way, but because of gratitude for God's love for us, this is how we should think about this and feel about this. That we're in debt to everyone. We want to love them. We just want to keep loving them. Not that we have to pay something off, but just like, I just, I want to love everyone as I've been loved. Galatians 5. For you were called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So you're not free to do as you want and sin as you please. You're free to serve one another through love. That means you're free from that sinful desires that demand and rule over you, and you're free to say yes to loving others. Ephesians 4, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. That should be on your fridge, parents. Bearing with one another in love. Not enduring just for endurance sake, not enduring so you don't harm them, but enduring because you love them and you keep loving them. 1 Thessalonians 3, and may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and for everyone, just as we do for you. We're not done yet, but you see how big of a deal this is. Again and again and again, this is your imperative. This is my imperative. This is what we are called to, to love one another. 1 Thessalonians 4, about brotherly love, you don't need me to write you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. But he also brought it up, so he kind of got away with writing it, right? Hebrews, let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works. 1 Peter 1, since you have purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other. From a pure heart, Love one another constantly. And then 1 Peter 4, 8. I think sometimes we read above all as a conclusion, but above all means above all, prioritized. Above all, maintain constant love for one another since love covers a multitude of sins. 
I'll bring it back to the description that I said at the very beginning. Christ-like, spirit-produced love is giving oneself to glorify God and do good to people graciously and righteously for the sake of friendship. This is what we're called to. This is what he expects and demands from us. And he's also the God of love who graces us and empowers us for this and forgives us when we completely and utterly fell. So because Jesus laid down his life for us, he loved us, we will, we will, we will love our brothers and sisters and lay down our lives for them. We are beloved lovers. Loved children called to love one another. Continue to do it in us, Lord. Please, Father, I pray that you would. Increase and overflow with love for one another. Lord, I pray for that. May you cause us to increase and overflow with love for another. I pray that our church would be known for our delighting in you and our love for another. That we passionately, ferociously are committed in adoration and praise to you and who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. And as Jesus said, others will know that we're your disciples if we love one another. I pray you do that. It would increase and overflow. Just as I don't think there's anyone ever to encourage, I can't imagine a church too loving, <laughs> too affectionate, too sacrificial, too full of life and brimming with joy and gratitude that we give ourselves to one another. Serve and bless and help. Lord, I pray you would continue to do it in us. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen.